0: I'm, I'm, a, I'm a Bible addict. At one point I had almost 40 Bibles, you know, different versions and styles and covers and things. When um, we decided to uh, take this call and come to, to Columbus, um, somebody uh, I, that I'm married to, who I won't mention out loud, um, said, you're, you're leaving behind most of your books, aren't you? And I said, I'd, I'd rather leave behind my children, <coughs> which we did. <laughs> Um, But I did leave behind about two-thirds of my books, and uh, a couple of young preachers in Kansas City came through and just kind of you know, like locusts in a field, just came and picked through all my books and took most of what I'd left out and the rest got uh, picked up by a few church members and and such. But, and about half my Bibles too um, uh, were left behind, but I still have a lot. So if you've got a, if you need a Bible, we've got free ones back there. I've got a couple of extra ones in my office. Be happy to uh, give to you if anybody wants a Bible. I'm really thrilled. I, I don't know how, I don't see Christy here tonight. I don't know how many Bibles we've ordered and given away, but we just keep ordering sets of 25 and a week or two later, do you know, Pam, how many Bibles we've given away, total at this point? Like a hundred? Is that is that a preacher number? Or is that close? I don't know. Some, somewhere between one and a hundred, anyway. But every every time I look at my email, it's like we've ordered another 25 Bibles because we've given away so so many. That's kind of a fun thing to do. All right. Um, Tonight, we're going to be, uh, if you put that first slide up for me, Stuart, that'd be great. We're going to be looking at what um, sometimes uh, has been called uh, the w- wisdom literature, and it also has also been called, more recently referred to as the writings. Here's a good quote from Adam Hamilton's book, Making Sense of the Bible. These writings appear in the heart of the Old Testament, and this is appropriate because they capture the heart and soul of the Jewish people, both the joyful moments in life and the difficult moments when life is shattered. That, that's not, not anything profound, but it's a good, solid, basic um, statement about what, what um, you'll find in, in the writings that we're looking at tonight. There's, if, you've, if you've done the readings for, for this evening, you already know that's true. All, all kinds of, of joyous, ex, ex, exultant bits of praise, some wonderful advice, and some really hard stuff and difficult things, and a couple of psalms, at least one of the psalms was uh, borderline ugly. Um, uh, but honest, and so when you get into these writings, these wisdom literature, this wisdom literature, or these these collections of of sayings and thoughts from from uh, antiquity in, in uh, Palestine, you get all sorts of uh, human human emotions. One of the things as a kid um, uh, that I discovered uh, as I, I started to read more of the Bible and, and seventh grade, eighth grade, on into high school, was how much how real and raw this was. And we've talked about that for a couple of weeks. Um, I had a professor in seminary. who used to say that the, the um, New Testament was dry cleaned, but the Old Testament was a pile of dirty laundry, you know? And, and, and I said, Dr. Owens, which one do you prefer? And he goes, oh, the dirty laundry, because you can really get a you know, real sense of who these folks are. And we're going to look at some wild stuff in the New Testament too. But it's almost as though the, the Old Testament just comes at us unfiltered. Here's all this stuff. Here's what people went through and here's what they were like. And uh, Frederick Beacon, who I quoted last week, I'm going to quote later on tonight. I'll put his quote up for you. But it has another quote where he says, our prayer ought to be not, oh, God, help us be like the people of the Bible, but rather, oh, God, help us. We're like the people of the Bible. And there's some real truth there when we get into some of these stories and find, find some of these, these issues com, coming at us. And so as a kid, um, it was really kind of surprising and a wonderful surprise to discover how open and honest uh, the characters and the writings uh, in the Bible, especially in some of the texts we're going to look at tonight, um, uh, really came across. When I grew up in, in the church, especially in a more uh, evangelical, fundamentalist setting, um, everything got spiritualized or sanitized the Song of Solomon that we're gonna look at tonight, I was taught as a kid growing up was that it was all allegorical. Don't take any of that stuff literally, it's all allegorical. You know, this, it represents something else. It represents Jesus as the, as the bride of the church and, and or the church is the bride of Christ rather and Jesus is the groom and, and so the, all these, this love language that's in there, um, it just represents the, the joy that we experience with Christ. Um, you know, as a kid growing up, okay, fine, that's fine. And then somewhere around 11th to 12th grade, some of us read the Song of Solomon. Did any of you get the chance to skim through some of it this week? Yeah, right, everybody, there's going, oh yeah. I, I, was quote, I was quoting a couple of them to Julie tonight, and we're going to see one of the quotes tonight, and Julie said, are, are you going to say that out loud? It's in the Bible. I, of course I'm going to say it out loud. Um, so you get, all, you get all those kinds of uh, amazing feelings. And here's one where I'm going to skip ahead just a little bit to the book of Ecclesiastes. And we'll get back to it in a moment. But just to, just to kind of set the tone. And this wasn't on your reading, but maybe you looked at Ecclesiastes 1, verse 2. Do you know that verse? Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. I mean, right from the beginning. Whoever wrote this, and it wasn't Solomon, by the way. Koheleth is what, how some people refer to him, which just means preacher or speaker or gatherer. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. The word for vanity in Hebrew is chabel. And you have to say it that way, chabel. It means literally mist. It's sometimes the word that is used to refer to the dew that's on the grass. I walked my dogs this morning and it was so humid still. When I got home, my, my little Nikes were soaking wet because there was so much dew on the grass. But by the time I left an hour or so later for the office, the dew was gone. Do you see what the poet's saying? Life is like the dew on the grass. It's here and then it's gone. Or or the one I like to think of in in the Glenn Miles version is, life is steam on the mirror. You take a shower, the mirror's steamed. By the time you're ready to head out the door, the mirror's gone, the steam is gone. Vanity of vanities. Have, have you noticed some of you who are, are over 21? I don't know if we got anybody under 21. The older you get, the quicker time goes. Yes. Have you noticed that? Have you ever met anybody who said, how old are you? I'm 55 and a half. <laughs> you talk to a five-year-old. and What's that five-year-old doing? How old are you? I'm five and a half. <laughs> you know, you get up, up after about 30 or so. You know, and then you start doing the backwards timing thing vanity of vanities all is vanity it comes and it's gone that quick so that really sets the tone for the book of ecclesiastes and and what we're going to encounter later later on but i think that's a good way for us to understand these these stories tonight that i mean these texts that we're looking at tonight um they'll they'll record some of the highest highs some of the the most shattering uh, um what is it adam said and the difficult moments when life is is shattered. We're gonna encounter some of those too. Um, I- including, the um, we, as we might say though, I think the book was that came out in the 60s or 70s, The Joy of Sex. We could have called Song of Solomon The Joy of Sex, because frankly, that's what it's about. Um, but uh, we're, we're, I'm skipping ahead to the good stuff, so let's st- start back here at, um, at the book of Job. Um, so hopefully you looked at the book of Job. If you want to turn to Job chapter one and just kind of skim through as I'm, as I'm talking about uh, about this story and we're gonna, I'm gonna stop at, ver, at chapter three and get a couple of quotes uh, up there for you. And Stuart, don't put that one up there yet. I'll tell you when I want that second slide. Um, uh, the story of Job is set, it begins actually in, in, a, in a, what is essentially a courtroom scene. It's God in a heavenly sort of court with, with folks gathered around God, these heavenly beings, and there's somebody there who's called the accuser. Um, if you have a new Revised Standard Version, what's that person called? Satan. Now here's where you gotta be careful. Um, the word Satan in Hebrew literally means accuser. And the idea of Satan as a devil is a very, 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 very late development in Judaism. There was no idea in earliest Judaism that there was a devil or an evil being or anything like that. Remember we saw that quote from uh, Chronicles last week where it said Satan was the one who inspired David to take a census. That book of Chronicles probably written maybe 400 uh, uh, BC or so, maybe even a little later than that, like 300. So that would be a 1,000 years later than, than the stories of, of Samuel and kings and, and all of that. That's when the idea of a Satan or a devil comes along when you you see the word Satan in Job, it's literally a transliteration. I shouldn't say it that way. It is a transliteration of the Hebrew word Satan. Ha-Satan is the direct article, the. In the Hebrew it says ha-Satan, the accuser. Another way to see that in this courtroom scene is this is the, this is, Satan is the, is the prosecuting attorney. Uh, anybody have a friend who's a lawyer? Uh, you, you can tell him, your preacher said, you know your real name is Satan. Um, <clears throat> and that was supposed to be a joke, thank you. Um, Uh, it's It's not an evil being. It's not somebody who causes people to do bad things. It's just a courtroom setting where God is the judge. And the prosecuting attorney, the accuser, Satan, comes and says, do you see Job over here? By the way, what does the Bible say he is? He is holy and, do you remember? Blameless. Fascinating little text there. If you have any friends who take the Bible literally, that means he's without sin which ought to cause some theological conundrums to uh, occur because uh, here's somebody who's a human being who has all these children and all this property and all this, all this land, etc. and he's, according to the text, holy and blameless. He is without sin, he is an upright man. He's never done anything wrong. That's the implication of the story. Satan comes and says, well, of course he's never done anything wrong, why? He's never been tested. He's never had to deal with anything. He's, he's rich beyond all means. He's got all these children, and a lot of children in antiquity in Israel would have meant that you were blessed by God. He's got all these children, all this property, all this uh, livestock, all of this. He's never had to deal with anything hard in his life. You, you, do something, you do something to him. You take some of that away, you'll see he'll turn away from you. He'll, he'll sin. He'll, be, he'll, he'll fall down. And so God basically argues back, come on, it's, let's not do this, and then, then God gives in, according to the story. And what happens? Do you remember what happens? All of his children are killed. All of the livestock are wiped out. He loses all of his property. And then what happens next to him? He's covered head to toe, head head to toe literally in some kind of a oozing, gigantic pimple thing where he's just covered in them from head, head to toe. It's gross, it's disgusting, it's horrible, it's miserable, except that he's left with his wife, who sits there and yaks in his ear the whole time, telling him, you need to just to curse God and die. Uh, now this is not exactly spousal behavior, uh, good spousal behavior 101, this is, this is pretty awful. And then, chapter three, Job says, after this Job opened his mouth and cursed the day of his, bu- of his birth. Let the day perish in which I was born and the night that said a man child is conceived. Let that day be darkness. Okay. To get, the, to get the full sense of what Job is doing here, what he's saying. Oh, by the way, I want to back up just a second. One of the things I learned as a kid, you know, one of the questions that always came up about Job's story, why, why, why do all the kids get killed? That's just terribly unfair, isn't it? I mean, I mean, Job's the one being tested, and all the kids are killed. You know what we were told? I remember, this, I remember this like it was yesterday. It was fifth or sixth grade in a Sunday school class. The teacher said, well, it's really clear that they were partying too much, and because of their behavior. I, I wouldn't, I, I ran past the beer section when I was a kid, you know, I'm not gonna get caught up in that stuff. <clears throat> this text we just read. Uh, So, by the way, if you can't tell, that's total nonsense, that, that answer from that teacher. But there are folks still who preach that. You can still hear preachers preaching that. What Job is saying literally is he's taking the word God and saying, damn, the day I was born. Okay, I separated that so it wouldn't be as harsh to sound. He's saying just the hell with all this. The language he uses there, in those, in, at least that the, the storyteller has him use, is essentially a wish my mother had had an abortion. So when somebody says to you, Oh, I just have the patience of Job, read chapter three, because <laughs> he's not patient. What he is patient, though, with is he never relents and gives in to the argument. Job is written against an argument that's really been around since the beginning of time. Probably, Job may be the oldest story represented in the entire Bible. Maybe, and it has roots that go way back beyond uh, Jewish or Hebrew roots. Uh, and it seems to be a story that has been handed down from culture to culture to culture to culture. It's arguing against what theologians call retribution dogma. That's like, Michael, I'm gonna pick on you, come here. Um, if Michael, or just stand right there at the edge. Oh, I can't go in front of the speaker. Come over here. Um, if, if I walk up to Michael and I go, you just, I'm just, yeah, get out of my way. What does the world say it's okay for him to do? Push, push me back. Yeah, don't please. Um, <laughs> thank you, Michael. That there's, if, you have, if you do something wrong, you're gonna get something wrong done back to you. And so that's what happens next is Job's friends have come to him and said, Job, Job clearly, Clearly you've messed up. You've committed a sin. You've done wrong in the eyes of the Lord. You need to confess your sin. And Job argues with them and says, I'm not done anything. I'm no, this isn't right. There is no reason for this to be happening. No, you must have done something wrong, or this wouldn't be happening. Absolutely not. And then he just gets, and that's when chapter three comes and he just blows up. Damn the day I was born. I wish my mother had an abortion. I wish I'd never seen the light of day. And then it's and then it's a lot of that. But then what happens for the next 35, 34 chapters or so is that Job argues with his friends back and forth, back and forth, long-winded speeches about justice and righteousness. And essentially the friends are right, aren't they? I mean, if you, if you run a red light and a cop's at that corner, what's going to happen to you? You're going to get arre- arrested, well, pulled over and given a ticket and, uh, and all, and all of that. If, you, if you're riding, you're driving through a green light and a car hits you, because that person's running the red light and you're killed, what's the retribution for you? You see the problem starts to develop. Maybe that other person goes to jail, maybe they get uh, put in prison for manslaughter, but what about you when you're the person who's been acted upon, when you're the one who's received the evil and there's been no uh, retribution? There is none that can take place. That's what Job's arguing with. Job is arguing with the popular theory of the day then and even today. You know, you hear somebody, well, if you're being investigated, you know, well, you must have done something wrong to create the investigation. We kind of make those assumptions and those, draw those conclusions that if something bad's happened to you, you must have done something wrong. Now, most of the time, that's, or a lot of the time, that's true. Sometimes bad things happen. I, I did a funeral for a girl who was 19 years old, who uh, was, was coming home late night from a party. She hit a... Um, uh, it's, in, it's in the East Bay of, of um, the, the Bay Area, Northern California. She hit this little section on the freeway where, where we all called it the camel humps. You go over it at 55 and your stomach kind of goes up in you a little bit. Well, she hit it at 90 and she went, she went airborne and the car flipped and rolled and she was thrown halfway through the, the windshield. Terrible, horrible thing. And the man who spoke before I preached the, at the service said, well, obviously God needed another angel in the choir. Um, Job says, if that's true, then I want nothing to do with that God." And we go on and on and on and on and on, back and forth with these arguments. These these well-learned men come along. Finally, Job's friends just give up, and then a guy named Elihu comes along. Elihu seems to be this young guy who's just graduated from seminary. And David Hett and I can tell you that anybody who's just gotten out of seminary is a scary person that you don't want to talk to. Because he knows everything about everything about everything. If you would just sit down, listen, let me lecture to you. And he gives these long, boring, uh, that was chapter 37. I hope you found it boring. It's basically saying, come on now, you know, God is God. And if these bad things happen, well, then you just got to deal with it because that's the way it is with, with life. And then Job says no again. And then we get this amazing speech from God in chapter 38. The Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind. Think tornado, think hurricane, think gigantic storm. And God says, who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Gird up your loins like a man. <laughs> it's one of my favorite uh, verses in the Bible. Does, how many of you remember John Wayne's only Oscar-winning performance? Can anybody name the movie? Not Rooster Cogburn, that was the character. What was the movie? Through grit. And there's a scene where the bad guys are on the other side of the valley, and he's on one side, and he pulls out his shotgun and he says, Gird your loins, you sons of something or others. And he goes charging across. That's straight out of the Bible. That's how nerdy I am. I'm ten years old and I'm watching that movie, going, That's from the Bible. We learned that in the Bible, Dad. <clears throat> Basically, that's God saying to Job You're not You're not God. I am. And why don't you just shut up? Now, from a pastoral kind of standpoint that's not real that's not very pastoral but what's amazing is at the end of this strong lecture from God to Job for Job that's enough he's encountered the holy he's had an experience with God and he survived how many questions are answered none zero how many explanations are given now, God basically says, were you there when I put the, the, the giants in the sea? Were you, were you there when I hung the clouds in the sky? When I, when I put up the mountains, where, where, where were you? You don't know, just be quiet. Now, theologically, that might not satisfy, but I just think for a moment. Has there been some gigantic thing you've gotten, gone through and thought you'd never get through, and you get to the other side, and there might still be some loss, there might still be some pain, but you take a deep breath and you say, somewhere in the midst of that, I sense the spirit of God and my life is going on. Now, at the end of the story, and it's quite clear, it's been tacked on, sort of an, it's almost American movie happy ending. He gets all kinds of kids and he gets lots of more land and everything's fine, everything's made great. What's the problem with that? The kids in the first chapter are still dead. <laughs> So we really haven't fixed everything with that happy, happy, clappy little ending. Job is the one who in these wise sayings, in this this collection of wisdom, or this collection of writings, really makes us encounter why life sometimes is unfair. In fact, there's a great book, and it doesn't answer that question. There's a great book by Rabbi Harold Kushner, you probably know this book, When Bad Things Happen to Good People. It's often misnamed. Many people say, oh, yeah, I read this book by a Jewish rabbi called Why Bad Things Happen to Good People. It's not why. He never answers the why. It's when bad things happen to good people. Because oftentimes, and I I bet if we turn around right now in little groups of four, we could, all of us in our group, come up three or four or five instances of somebody holy and blameless. I held held a seven-year-old boy in my arms in, in South Africa who had never walked who was born HIV positive, who a week later was dead. Job is a book that speaks to that situation. It doesn't bring an answer, but it brings the rage and the anger and allows that to be spoken out loud. It's one of the great reasons why this book is in the Bible. All right, let's, um, I forgot to tell you to put Job uh, chapter three, verses three and four up there. Um, Stuart, why don't you put that up real quick for me? Slide two, there it is. Let the day perish in which I was born and the night that said a man child is conceived. Let that day be darkness. He is, he, he is expressing himself. In the Hebrew, it is just this powerful curse against God. All right, well, we're gonna look at the, at the book of Psalms now and we really gonna kind of need a little bit of up, uplift after uh, dealing with Job and, and all that. Let's see slide number three um, now, Stuart, please. This is a quote from... Uh, from Frederick Buechner, one of my favorite theologians, as you've more no doubt already guessed. We learn to praise God not by paying compliments. Listen, this is such good stuff. But by paying attention. Watch how the trees exult when the wind is in them. Mark the utter stillness of the great blue heron in the swamp. Listen to the sound of the rain. Learn how to say hallelujah from the ones who say it right. Just love that quote. That's from his book, Wishful, Wishful Thinking. We learn to praise God not by paying compliments, but by paying attention and if we're paying attention, sometimes it leads to protest, to making sure things are right. You know, the American slaves were taught Christianity, and what, what story really did they pay attention to in the Bible? Exodus, yeah, let my people go. Let my people go. People who couldn't read or write in fact, it was illegal for them to read or write, heard the story. And what did they say? That's our story. When we're paying attention, we'll notice where there's injustice in the world as well as, 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 well as beauty. Okay, turn to Psalm chapter one. The word, of, I, if I can get there, the word in, in my translation, the New Revised Standard Version, I think that it begins with is happy. Um, sometimes the word is, is blessed. Um, it's, it's a word that really means, hey, life is great. And, and it, life is wonderful, and, it's, and here's some very, very practical advice on how to make it through life. It's a little bit of an antidote to what we just got through in, in Job. So that we read Job, we get to Psalms, and all of a sudden, oh, oh, well, here's this great practical piece of advice. Now skip on ahead, on ahead to Psalm uh, chapter eight. And then look at verse five, where, where the psalmist declares, that we are a little lower than God. Another one of my favorite texts. Have you heard of the concept of original sin? It's kind of funny, you can't find that phrase in the Bible anywhere. For hundreds of years, we've been misled. I believe in original blessing. That's Matthew Fox's um, uh, phrase from 35 years ago. And here's one of the texts I would point to as as the fact that we are blessed from the beginning. We're just a little lower than God. Do you remember what Genesis 1 said? Day 1, God looked at what God had made and it was good. Day 2, 3, 4, 5, it's good, it's good, it's good. Day 6, God makes male and female in the image of God and they were, do you remember? Very good, original blessing. There's the, the very first chapter of the Bible speaks clearly about how we are blessed and we are very good. And then you can find all kinds of little little, little pieces like this from the, the Bible itself that it affirms that. All right, so turn to Psalm 23. You probably don't even need to turn to it to, to read the text. Yea, though I walked through the valley of the shadow of death. On the Sunday after um, 9-11, my associate minister, Russell Peterman, Uh, who is now going to become the senior minister at a 4,000-member church, um, University Christian Church in Fort Worth, Texas, Uh, my my very good buddy Russ, um, uh, was scheduled to preach that Sunday. He was the youth guy back then. Now he's 50 and and smart and distinguished and all all that, Um, and bald. Uh, 9-11 happened. And of course, like all of you, we, Julie and I sat up to late at night watching the news, watching those planes at the towers over and over again, wondering what's going on with our world, what are we going to do with our little boys, all, all the things I'm sure you were feeling and encountering. The next day on Wednesday morning, I went to Russ's office and I said, Russ, I, I know you're scheduled to preach to, on Sunday, but this is kind of a senior minister thing. Oh, good. Thank God. You please you you preach. <laughs> and so I preached. and I, And I... I I, I had an emergency meeting of of in that church. They have elders, which is a little bit like our diaconate, Um, sort of a crossbreed between the diaconate and the governing board anyway. And so I called a meeting of the elders, and I said, I I don't know what to do. I'm just, and I whined for about 20 minutes. What am I going to say on Sunday? How am I going to preach? And finally, my friend Sid Elliott, who was the chair of the board, said, Glenn, that's the start of your sermon. Stand up on Sunday and say, I don't know. I don't know what to do. I don't know what to say. And by doing that, you'll be naming what everyone in the room feels. And our pastor will, will be able to acknowledge that. I did that, and then I used this text, Psalm 23. And I talked about the fact that we're living in the valley of the shadow. Interestingly enough, some of the, not all of them, but some of the terrorists had actually gotten their, their pilots training at an at a air, airfield not far from Atlanta where we were living. And there were all kinds of stories after 9-11 about people who, oh yeah, I I met him. Oh yeah, I met that one. Yeah, I'm the guy that taught him how to fly. I'm the one that uh, took his paperwork. All legal and above board, of course. So I said in that sermon, the people who killed 3,000 Americans and others from around the world were in our backyard. They were here. We're living in the valley of the shadow. Sometimes when life is, throwing us a curveball, the best thing we have going for us is a is a text that we know so well we can say it from from memory yea though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death I shall what fear no evil we'd seen evil on on that day and we needed we needed to be able to say that prayer to say that 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 beautiful psalm over and over and over again in fact in some ways uh um a familiar text like that is kind of like the, the food we bring to somebody after they've lost a loved one. You know, when my dad died, which was six years ago, I, I, I got a call from my brother that he was dying. I got on the phone with a travel agent. Remember travel agents? <laughs> she got me a flight on Southwest the first thing the next morning, and about the time that the, I hung up the phone, my brother called back to say, he's gone. Flew down there and, and actually my brother and I had a, a, was a tough time, but we had a great time. You know, you know how that is if you've lost somebody, reconnecting and we were going through all my dad's old stuff and finding things that he'd kept that were just really strange. Why would you keep, you know, laughing and crying all at the same time? When we got back, I remember somebody in the church came by with a, with a cream, a coconut cream cake, you know, and just said, so sorry about you losing your dad. I think I ate three pieces of that cake as soon as the person left. Because there's something about comfort food. You know, there's something about, uh, when, a lot of times when, I, when, I, when, I, when I've done a funeral, I wanna go out and get the greasiest big basket of french fries I possibly can and cover them in cheese and tomatoes and, 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 and no tomatoes, that's too healthy, ketchup. Um, you know, in some ways Psalm 23 is that sort of comfort food. It's that word that can reach in and just, just help us take a deep breath again and receive whatever goodness that God wants to do for us in the moment. All right, the text I preached on the next week after 9-11 was Psalm 46. You might recognize this Psalm in that it is um, the same text or a similar text that is used for, um, or that inspired our hymn, A Mighty Fortress Is Our, is our God. <clears throat> oh, and there's the, uh, the, the great, there's a great, it's just a great, yeah, verse two. Therefore we will not fear. Though the earth should change, though the mountains shake in the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble with its tumult. You might remember that when um, uh, Haiti was almost completely destroyed in a terrible earthquake. Remember that Haitian earthquake a few years ago? And the infrastructure in that country is horrible and buildings just collapsed everywhere. Hundreds of thousands, 100,000 or more were killed. I mean, unbelievable. I've been there. I led a mission trip there a couple years after that happened. And you might remember Pat Robertson said something extremely stupid, vile and ignorant and said because they practiced voodoo 150 years ago, God is punishing them. I'll never forget John Stewart, the comedian, came out after Pat Robertson said that and he read Psalm 46. And he said, Reverend Robertson, though the earth shake and the water's foam, it says in your Bible. Sometimes we've got to rely on our own text in order to help ourselves make it through through life. All right, here's one of the ugliest texts in all the Bible, maybe in in, um, um, any sacred text, honestly. Psalm 137. By the rivers of Babylon, there we sat down and there we wept. In the last verse, happy shall they be who take your little ones and dash them against the rock. This is not an instruction for how to treat our enemies. It is a reflection of this poet's deep, unbelievable existential pain. They've been captured by the Babylonians. They've been dragged away from from their land. Anyone who was caught up in the war was killed. Anyone who was left over, especially a male. You know what they would do to make their point, literally? They'd find a strong tree in the village. They'd tear all the branches off of, all, all, all of the limbs off of a big branch on the side, make sure it was all stripped bare, file it down to a point. Take the man who might have been like sort of the head of the village or perhaps the head of the militia, And while he's still alive, impale him on that branch. The person who wrote this, in all likelihood, saw that, maybe dozens or even hundreds of times. So it's hard to judge. Have any of you been to the Holocaust Museum in Washington, D.C., or in Jerusalem? Julie and I went to the one in Jerusalem. You can't get through. You can't get through without just being horrified at 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 what happened to the Jews in the 30s and 40s. It's just unbelievable to think that another human being, there's one section there, and I'm not sure if this is in, I've not been to the one in DC, but there's one section in the the one in in, in Jerusalem where you, you, you turn a corner, you walk around, and embedded in the floor, covered with glass, are just hundreds and hundreds, maybe a thousand or more pairs of shoes. And it's just so human and so real and so overwhelming and so gut-wrenching. Julie was with me and a a few steps later, she walked around a corner and there was a rabbi uh, teaching a group of 15, 16-year-olds. And of course, it's in Hebrew. We don't know exactly what they're saying. All of a sudden, the girl in the back collapses onto the floor and just begins to sob uncontrollably at what was done to her people. So it's hard to read this text and say, well, they're not as enlightened as us. <clears throat> if you've seen something horrific done to another human being, and it was done to your people because of the color of your skin or the nature of your faith, I'm glad it's there. I'm not glad it's there because it's what I, how I think we ought to behave or what we ought to do, but it reflects that same gut level, pain filled, horrible anger, frustration, and reality that sometimes happens in in the world. Two chapters later, Psalm 139. This text, at least the part that I'm going to read, is on my wall in my office. Verse seven, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, You are there also. What is Sheol? Anybody know? Place of the... David, you studied ahead. (laughs) It's the place of the dead. Sometimes it's translated as hell. That's not a good translation. But in a preacher's kind of way, that's not bad because what, what, the, what the psalmist is saying, when life is great and wonderful and perfect and everything's happy and the kids are behaving well and the dog is, is doing the right thing and not scratching up the carpet like our dog is doing, everything's all perfect and wonderful, life is great and God is present. And when you feel like you're in the place of the dead and your life sucks and you're in hell and it's awful and you can't imagine it getting any worse and you wanna know where God is, the psalmist promises God's there. Do you know that story from Elie Wiesel? When he's in the prison camp during World War II, and there's a twelve-year-old boy being hung. But because he's stronger than the other two who are hung next to him, he survives the initial snap of the rope, and his body wriggles and writhes in pain as he tries to fight against that rope around his neck. And someone says to Wiesel, Where's God? Have you heard this story? And Wiesel says what? He's on the gallows. These texts come out of what Adam called earlier the greatest moments and the shattered moments, reminding us, especially Psalm 139, reminding us that whether we're in the, in the absolute, bottomless pit of hell, or in the highest heaven where everything's great and perfect, God is in those places, in both those places. All right, let's... um. Let's look at the book of Proverbs, which we kind of need right now after all that heavy, heavy stuff. Proverbs, may I confess a sin? No, it's not a sin. An unpopular opinion, perhaps. This is one of my least favorite books in the Bible. <laughs> I, I, there are preachers I know and I have friends who are faithful Bible students. I was in a small group in, in Kansas City that met on Wednesdays at a country club and there was like half a dozen of us and we'd read the Bible and there was one guy, I swear he could just pull, you know, Proverbs twenty-one six says, and you know, happy are the wise who always read their books ahead of time or, or something. How do you know this stuff? <laughs> And he'd say, I just read, the, I read a chapter of Proverbs every day. I've been doing that now for 10 years. I can get through the whole, the whole book in a month, and then I just start over again. And it's like, wow, that's amazing. I, I, it's, it's good, practical, solid advice. It, re, it really is. There's, there's some amazing words in there. that base, It basically says, um, if you do the right things, good things will happen. Uh, how, uh, don't raise your hand, but if you had a kid, if you're a parent, did you tell your kid, look, if you do the right thing, things will be fine, Right? You know, I mean, I, I, how many home, how many homework arguments did we have in our in our family? Just do your homework, and you'll get a good grade. It never worked because, well, it's another story. But it's basically true, right? If you do the work over here, and then you're going to be fine over here. If you do what you're supposed to do, then things will work out okay. If you do your job, well, then you'll get a raise. If you do all of, and that's basically the book of Proverbs. It's lots of nice little advice. You know. Um, uh, uh, I always get in trouble for this one, but I'll quote it anyway. A beautiful woman who's not very smart is like a, like a ring in a pig's nose. <laughs> that's, in the book of, that's in the book of Proverbs. Um, uh, the commentators think, and this will show you why I shouldn't even quote that. The commentators think that most of the Proverbs were written and or collected by um, theological and cultural elites. These are the wealthiest, most successful people. And it kind of makes sense, doesn't it? These folks whose lives have turned out just great and everything's terrific and they got everything you could ever want. Oh, you know what? I worked hard, I, that's why I got this and that's how it is. It's also kind of a challenge to Job and a little bit of a challenge to um, Ecclesiastes that we're gonna look at later because they're basically saying, look, you whiners over there about all that stuff. Come on, do the right thing and, and things will work out okay for you. Um, look at, look at uh, 127. Uh, Somebody sent me a question earlier today. I can't remember who it was, but somebody sent me a question about the fear of the Lord. Uh, Proverbs 1, 7, I meant. Proverbs chapter 1, 7. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. It's a nice, a nice little um, comment. Somebody wrote me a question about the fear of the Lord. And what does that mean? Just real quickly, fear here in this context means respect or awe. It's not about being afraid in God's presence. It's about having respect or even uh, feeling a sense of awe. I mean, have you ever been to um, uh, the Grand Canyon? Or maybe perhaps you've been to the Rocky Mountains or to Glacier National Park or um, uh, uh, to um, the Oregon coastline. Um, I'm thinking of some of the, the, some beautiful places. You just walk out and just go, you take a deep breath. You know, that's... That's awe. That's the that's that sense of just being amazed at, at the greatness of the beauty you're, you're you're seeing. That's what it means to experience the fear of the of the Lord there to be, uh, be full of respect and, and awe. Now, if you would also um, turn real quickly to twenty two seventeen, chapter twenty two, seventeen. This is a, this is this is a fascinating little part of the book of Proverbs. 2217, this section that begins here and ends in 2422 is almost an, ex- well, it practically is an exact copy of some Egyptian wisdom literature with no footnotes. <laughs> By the way, in antiquity, when you did that, it was considered a way of honoring the person you were copying. Matthew uh, and Luke, for example, copy huge chunks of Mark's gospel and insert them in their own gospels. And, and do a little editing, a little commentating here and there, but basically they don't, they don't say, oh, you know, Mark said and quote it. No, they just take it and use it and go with it. In antiquity, that was a compliment. But I'm bringing this up for you. This, was, this section here, 2217 through 2422, uh, was written by an Egyptian uh, high official Uh, who was the son of, I'm gonna mess up his name, David, you probably know how to pronounce it, Uh, Amen Amen M-Opet, did I say it right? Whoever it was, that guy, yeah. (laughs) A-M-E-N dash, E-M dash O-P-E-T, Amen M-Opet, something like that, Um, probably around 13th century before Christ, 13th century BC. Um, Now, why am I pointing this out for you? One, it's a good Bible nerd kind of thing to, to discover. Two, it's as I've said in a couple of sermons recently, the Bible isn't afraid of truth that comes from other people. Some, somebody sitting around in, in, in Jerusalem or somewhere when they're putting together the book of Proverbs said, oh, you remember, oh, back when we were in third grade, we had to read that weird Egyptian guy. There's actually some pretty good stuff. Oh, yeah, and they go and they run and they find the scroll. They roll it out and they go, yeah, that's good. Copy that. Put that in right here. And that's what they've done. Here's, here's one of the ways we know, we, we know it because we can compare this text to an Egyptian text. But here's, here's the verse that really sets it across. Uh, verse 20, 2220. Have I not written for you 30 sayings of admonition and knowledge to show you what is right and true so you may give a true answer to those who sent you? Um, That's kind of an interesting little comment uh, along the way. There are not 30 sayings in, in this section. It's referencing something else in that Egyptian book of wisdom sayings. It's like the guy who plagiarized here forgot he needed to clean that part up. (laughs) One time when um, uh, I had a a kidney infection, I I was, according to my doctor, I'd been working out, so our people over 50 shouldn't work out too hard, apparently, I I was, what's what's your line, Julie? Um, I was writing checks my body couldn't cash. Yes. Writing checks, my body couldn't cash, and my, so my, I wasn't, uh, anyway, my kidneys shut down, and I had an infection. Ended up overnight in the hospital. I called my executive minister, Carla Addy, and I said, I'm in the hospital. I'm really in pain. And she said, you want me to preach Sunday? Yeah. It it was a Saturday morning. I said, yeah, could could you preach Sunday? And she said, yeah, can I have your your notes? I said, sure. Uh, She was married to a man named Dave, so I said, all the parts where it says Julie, just change that to Dave, and I think it'll, (laughs) I think it'll work. You see the idea, you know, they, they forgot to fix that little part here when they, when they copied it. Um, uh, however, what's also interesting about this, if you read all these, these Proverbs, there's a couple little Proverbs in there that imply one of the most important things you can do is care for the poor. Maybe that's part of the reason they got it, their attention. Those Egyptians, even as bad as they could be, sometimes were pretty straight on. That was 2222 is the specific one I was looking at there for the words about the poor. All right, I'm gonna save some time for, for Song of Solomon, so let's keep on moving. Ecclesiastes uh, 1 verse 2, vanity of vanities, all is vanity, that's how we opened up tonight. Life is like mist, it's here in the mirror in the morning, before you know it, it's gone. Um, chapter three, without looking at chapter three, maybe you already read it, That which is fine, if you did, that's good. Um, did anybody think of anything when you read chapter three? Birds. The birds, yeah. For, for every season, turn, turn, turn. I would say that of all the, all the texts that I do, when somebody says, uh, when I meet with a family to plan for a funeral, the, 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 the most popular one is John 14. In my father's house, there are many mansions or there are many rooms. Second most popular would be Psalm 23. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. Third would be this one. And, I, and it's kind of fascinating to me that that's the text that we read because it's not necessarily about eternal life. It's not, it's not really about what's next at all. It just basically says, you know, this is what we experience in life. This is what we all go through. And this is what our, our father, our, our, our mother, our, our friend, our child, our daughter, whoever. It's a, it's a beautiful text, but it's kind of a mournful one. There's a, there's a sorrowful tone at the center, at the center of it. What goes around, goes around. Um, slide number four there, Stuart, if you would, please. I think that's the right one. Then you get to the end. Chapter 12, verse one. When I was a little boy, this was the text we had to memorize. Remember the jet cadets for Jesus, I told you about all that, right? This is one of the texts we had to memorize. Remember now thy creator in the days of thy youth. That's the King James Version. That's why it has that thy uh, kind of funky sound to it. You know, so we were told in, in Sunday school growing up, you know, when you're a kid, remember God now and remember all the things that you learn in our lessons and our classes and church and worship and all the rest because that'll inform you as you grow up and it'll be good for you in, in your life. And that's a pretty good thing. Um, I, I've heard plenty of sermons about this at youth camps, at, at church events and things specifically designed for kids when I was, when I was growing up. Fred Craddock, who died a couple of years ago, who's one of my favorite preachers, in fact, lived near us in Atlanta, um, talks about the time he heard this text preached at his baccalaureate service when he graduated from high school. And he'd never heard it before. Remember that creator in the days of your youth. So he went home and he opened up his Bible to Ecclesiastes 12, and he read the whole thing, he read the whole verse. This is only half the verse. Put the next slide up. while the evil days come not in in not king james english what that would say is remember your creator in the days of your of your youth before the evil days come fred's 18 years old he goes home and he's like what <laughs> he only read half the verse what are the evil days what is this what is this really about it's not about oh be taught well when you're a kid and things will work out fine when you get older. It's like, enjoy it when you're a kid because you're gonna get old. If you read the rest of chapter 12, it's it's a lot of uh, allegorical imagery there. Did anybody read it? When the guardians of the house, what's he talking about? Hands. When the windows of the house go dim, what's he talking about? Eyes. When the ladies' grinders are bad, what's he talking about? Teeth. Chapter 12 is a musing on life and aging and death. The book of Ecclesiastes is essentially, well, here's a good way to, to, to describe it. The, the book of Ecclesiastes is the little old man sitting, way, and there's nobody there now so I can point that way, sitting way over in the corner, on a Sunday morning while we're all in here just clapping and we're clapping for the songs and we're singing and we're having a good time and, and Jesus and me and we're okay and everything's great and, and wonderful and there's an old guys sitting over there going, y'all just clap all you want, but life's terrible. That's the book of Ecclesiastes. This is the guy who's saying, yeah, 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 fine. You preach all your happy sermons, Glenn, and you know, do this and do that and things will be great, but come on, we know it's hard. Now, here, here again, if this was the only book we had for our religion, we would have a terrible religion. <laughs> I mean, it would be awful. We, would have, we wouldn't have fellowship hour, we'd have, oh, things are getting worse hour. You know, it would just be, it would just be terrible and awful and sad and, and probably no one would come back the next Sunday. But I'm really glad it's in the Bible because his voice over there in the corner needs to be included. That guy who's been around and who's been through it, who's seen war come and then peace and then war come back. We need that, we need that voice over there. We need that voice in our lives, in our, in our fellowship to keep us, to keep us honest and, and straight. All right, what slide number was that? I lost my place here. Is that four? Yeah, that's fine, okay. Now, we're gonna go, okay, so all that that heavy, heavy, heavy stuff, Uh, now let's get to the Song of Solomon. Put up slide six. Verse, chapter one, verse two, I mean, talk about just getting right to it, baby. This is just cutting right to, you're supposed to laugh at that. Let him, (laughs) let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for thy love is better than wine. Okay, here's your assignment, preach a sermon on that text. It's a beautiful text, frankly. It's a beautiful book in the Bible. And we, like I said, when I was growing up, the way we were taught was this is an allegorical love poem about Jesus and, and the church. The church is the bride of Christ. And this, it uses this, this language sometimes to really express how powerful that relationship is and, and all of that. And th- maybe, but not really. It certainly wasn't what the original author was thinking of when he or she uh, wrote this, not really. Although, I read an interesting commentary today who said that, uh, here's, here's a good phrase for you, David, uh, the canonization process makes room for the theological interpretation of allegory. Um, in regular people, David knows what that means, but in regular people language, what that, what that means is it's, it's okay, it's okay for the text to have evolved over time to speak in a different voice and to a different topic than it necessarily began, how it began. Does that make sense? In, in other words, I think in its what the poet, what the what the commentator is saying. And I'm not sure by everything he's saying, but I, I kind of like it. I think the poem in its in its original form was an erotic love poem, not pornographic, but erotic. Um, here's an example. Next slide. I said I will go up to the palm tree, I will take hold of the boughs thereof. Now also thy breast shall be as clusters of the vine and the smell of thy nose like apples. The part about nose smelling like apples, I don't get, but the other parts, <laughs> I kinda understand. Now, this is the part that I quoted to Julie. She's like, are you gonna quote that a lot? I said, of course I am, because it's in the Bible, Song of Solomon, um, seven, chapter seven, verse eight. And frankly, folks, this is one of the um, less risque passages. There's all kinds of stuff. Now, we've, here's one of the mistakes we made, and I'm kind of going that, that, down that direction, so let me stop there. Sometimes commentators have gone over the other direction of pulling out every possible imagery, oh, this means that, and then it's almost, it's almost like they're wanting to turn it into something numb, what's the word, prurient? Am I saying that right? You know, they're, they're turning it into something nasty, and that's not what it is, not at all. It's this beautiful erotic poem, shared where there's two voices often, shared between two lovers. And it's one telling the other how much he yearns and, and desires her and her saying the same to him. <clears throat> so, why is that in the Bible? Oh, in fact, this comment while you're thinking about that question, this commentator said, another way to look at this text is to understand it as the relationship between not Jesus and the church but between God and humanity. That there's this intense knowing, an understanding, at its at its at its mo, at its deepest level is every bit as intense as as the sexual moment. Uh, in fact, the word for uh, Hebrew uh, for know to know another person is yada, and it can also imply sexual intercourse. To know them at that deep, deep, intimate sexual level, as uh, um, Adam and Eve are described that way in the in the Book of Genesis. Why is this in the Bible? Anybody? There's no wrong answer because this one's wide open for interpretation. What do you think? Somebody, uh, raise a hand and say, Yes? It's a, human experience. it's a human experience. Yeah. Did I see a hand over here? No. It it's love. It's love. Yeah. Anybody else? I, I, all of the above. I, 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 think, I think what it's, it's helping us understand is the beauty of what God has done with humanity. To, to recognize the joy that is, that is there. If we, if, we, if we shove the sexual act off into a dark corner, um, it becomes less than it should be. If we, if we hold it up all the time as though, oh, hey, this is all that matters, it's become more than it should be. When it's presented as part of the whole of life, that's something we enjoy and it can appreciate and, and live within, then it's a, a beautiful and, and marvelous thing. All right, um, we've got five minutes. Uh, I've got—I need a runner or two. If there's anybody with any questions, um, if somebody could run one of these mics, Let's see if I can find the. Um, do I just hit that button there? Oh, the battery died in that one. Well, it's not going to work if the battery's dead. What about this one? Does this one work? Okay, I'll let you do that. So while they're doing the batteries check, um, any questions I can hear? I can hear pretty good up here if anybody has a question. Raise a hand and shout it out. Lots of heavy stuff tonight. Where's that? Oh, you already gave all the answers. I thought saw a hand. Yes? Yeah, no one knows. Anyone who tells you they know what it means, they're not saying the truth. No one really knows. There's all kinds of um, comments that it might be some kind of a musical instruction, you know, because the Psalms most likely were sung. She asked um, about the word silah, S-E-L-A-H. Um, oh, I, no one really knows. There's all kinds of answers that, that people have come up with. It might be this, it might be that. It might be a musical kind of thing. Maybe it means pause. Maybe it sings, sing with joy. No one knows. That's the, ultimately what, what it is. And by the way, I didn't get into a lot of this. Um, in terms of authorship. um, David gets credit for writing the Psalms. Uh, Solomon gets credit for writing the Proverbs and Song of Solomon and um, uh, Ecclesiastes. Um, Again, in antiquity, sometimes you would take a famous name and put it on your document. And in fact, there's some, there's some early church letters that are attributed to Paul or Peter or John or other people that are, we're pretty sure were not written by those apostles directly. Their name was just borrowed just as a way of saying, oh, this is pretty good stuff. So when you see Song of Solomon, I mean, two chapters were stolen from Proverbs. So we know that Solomon didn't write those, or three chapters were stolen from Proverbs. We know he didn't write those. We don't really basically know who wrote these. And in fact, almost all of these texts... Job's the hardest one, but most of them, um, you can see there's been emendations and corrections and edits and changes over time and how it was originally and how it ended up when it got in the Bible was, were not the same, two same things at the very beginning. Any more questions? you all been great. Let's stand up and have a prayer. We'll be done three minutes early. Good and gracious God, we're grateful for all that you've done for our world and for our lives. We're grateful for the way this sacred word continues to speak to us, even today. Allow us to continue to keep our minds, hearts, and hands open so that we may understand, so that we may love, so that we may serve. In Christ's name, amen.